This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a gorgeous and graceful life. Two quick items of business before we get to today's episode. First, this episode comes with a transcript, thanks to Tracy Scharf. And there's a whole bunch of transcribers now. There's like four or five people who have volunteered to transcribe episodes. Some were one and done and some are ongoing. If you would like to help contribute to the transcription effort so that people who are deaf and hearing impaired can also benefit from this podcast, you can do it by volunteering to transcribe episodes, past and future, and also by sending some cash so that I can pay transcription services if you uh, aren't nimble on the keyboard like I'm not. Just drop me a line, hj at plantyourself.com, and let me know your pleasure. Second thing, you can still download the uh, May Vanishing Report, which is a simple document, a couple of pages called No Recipe Required. It's just like a brainstorming cheat sheet of dishes and meals you can make um, with the plant-based kitchen without needing lots of recipe books and ideas and, uh, you know, being a professional chef in the kitchen. Just I think you might just print out those pages, put it in a binder somewhere, and when you get home and you have no motivation or energy or ideas, you just open it, point at something, and say, okay, well, I'll just make this. So that's all it is. And you can download that from plantyourself.com slash cheat slash C-H-E-A-T, all lowercase. Okay, now to today's episode. I recorded this conversation with Adam Sud and his mom, Lisa Sud at HealthFest Marshall. And it was such an amazing conversation. We were sitting in this little side room off a museum full of toys and just talking about Adam's story of basically turning into a drug addict, being, um, you know, coming from a comfortable middle-class home and getting into trouble with drugs and really having a you know, kind of a terrible tailspin. And to have that story be told with input from his mother, who was there for the whole thing, who saw some of it, who didn't see some of it, who could kind of have this conversation with him and reflect on what had happened and how they've made their way back together as a family and how Adam has now taken the lead nationally in the fight against drug addiction. Um, it was it was remarkable. I know at, at the very end... I say, like, I, I feel like introducing this podcast with, hey, this is the Plan Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson, and holy shit, wait till you hear this. And that's kind of where I am right now. I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. Now, the audio quality is not the best because we're in the field, and I don't know what I'm doing with equipment. <laughs> I can barely manage it in my little studio here. But I think it's pretty listenable, and it's definitely worth it. So without further ado, Adam Sud and your mother, Lisa, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Uh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, and here is like a children's um, play area at this uh, art museum in Marshall, Texas. Yeah. There's teepees. There's stuff on the, on the wall, the Discovery Village. There's a, if we get bored, there's a, looks like a, a big tray of, uh, of stuffed animals. Stuffed animals. With, yeah. So, uh, and we got a treasure chest of toys. Oh, Brio. Can you yeah. guys just do this and I'll play? I mean, yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're a little giddy and playful, and you may hear, um, you, the, uh, the listening audience, may hear 
the, the door squeak because we could not find any WD-40. Yeah. Uh, even though Adam brought his mother, and I thought mothers are supposed to be Always prepared for prepared. everything. But uh, I'm really excited to do this interview, and I'm doubly excited to have uh, mom's perspective. Um, so, Adam, why don't you just start by telling us kind of the, the origin story, the origin story. Of, of you. So, well, you know, the story starts a long time ago, really. I mean, I got to go back to, to when, I was, when I was young, and I'm a seventh-generation Texan, and I'm a Jew, and, and I grew up eating... You know, burgers and barbecue and bagels and blintzes. That's that's all I like to say. Um, I ate the diet of my culture, and my culture was a uh, a Jewish culture that was combined with the standard American diet um, and emphasized by Texas. And I, you know, I ate this food. But when I was young, I had I had a lot of friends. I was, I, I played sports. Um, we're going to use the train set to raise we'll up that. the mic. Yeah. So I had uh, I played I played sports. I had friends. You know I I felt really healthy. I was you know I was an active kid. I, when I wasn't when I wasn't in school, I was outside. When I was outside, I was either playing baseball. If it wasn't baseball, it was football. If it wasn't football, it was basketball or rollerblading. And I didn't go inside until my mom called me in for dinner. That that was my life growing up. But the other thing about my life was you know I have a uh, my dad, my relationship with my dad is kind of interesting because he and I had a, a, like I had an amazing childhood. I had an incredible childhood where my imagination was developed by my mom and my you know my idea of what it what it meant to be a man was really well uh, um, personified by my father and but and, and I wanted my dad is my superhero. And as a kid, it was even more so. And I felt even more connected to him because his father passed away uh, at such a young age when my dad was only 25 um, to colon cancer. And it was, uh, it was a shock to my dad. I, I, from my understanding, he doesn't, he, doesn't really, he doesn't really talk a lot about the, the time period of my grandfather's diagnosis to his passing, like the time period, how quickly it was. But I don't think it was that, that long of a time, if I'm right. It's a little over a year. A little over a year, so it went pretty quickly. Um, uh, and um, I think that that was really, I mean, obviously it was a very traumatic experience, but from my understanding of my dad is that that, that incident shut him off emotionally and made him fearful from that point on of, of people who he's very close with, people that mean a lot to him. Uh, that there's a real possibility that at any moment they can, they can be gone. And if he's going to watch them doing something that is uh, detrimental to their health, detrimental to their life, uh, he's going to become critical of it. And that happened for me as a kid because when I was young, I used to, like any young kid, I liked to eat junk food. Um, but it, I got criticized for it. Um, and I remember as a young age becoming a closet eater. Uh, my mom would make the Pillsbury... Um, Oh, here it comes. No. Here it comes. The Pillsbury um, uh, cinnamon, cinnamon rolls. rolls every morning for breakfast. Not every no, morning. no, 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 not every morning for breakfast. Uh, the, are those ones that you sort of pop the... Yeah, yeah exactly. I love those. Yeah, you, right? you, you twist it and then it pops. And then it pops and then they just sort of like... Right. Out, you know? Yeah, and they would always fight over the one in the center because I would do it in a pie pan. The one in the center, center was it wasn't the, burned. It was, uh, <laughs> I, I used to... I think it was just the dinner rolls. I used to actually like... like 
like eat one of them raw, like literally. An oh yeah, one. I would grab little bits of it and eat it raw before she put it in. Yeah, they were great. But so so we we would sit down to breakfast and they'd be like, all right, y'all, you guys can have two. That's it, two. And of course, you can't just have two. These things were amazing. And even as a kid, I ate a lot. So we'd eat. I have two, and then as we were getting ready to go to school, I would come into the kitchen and I'd grab a few extra and I'd run back to my room and I'd eat them in my room, or I would eat them in the dining room in the dark. And at the time, I wasn't aware what I was doing and, and that I was doing it in the dark. I was hiding myself. I was hiding my behavior. There was a fear of being caught because what I wasn't doing was okay, and therefore I must not be okay. See, that resonates with me so much, and I'm identifying with your dad, because when I went plant-based, gosh, it must have been 2003, you know, I went to, like, the thing, and I heard the doctors talk, and they did, like, the McDougal talk, you know, John McDougal talked last night, and, you know, and his talk was, like, food poisoning. And I came home, and I just saw all this food, like, with skull and crossbones on it. Yeah. And so, you know, from going away to, like, my immediate transformation, like, my family was not there. Yeah. My kids were young, and I immediately, you know, and I wasn't so subtle about my criticism. Yeah. And I think I caused a lot of problems as well. And also the dynamic became, like, my wife, their mother was, you know, she, she, she believed me that, that this was a better way to eat, but she also saw the emotional damage. She was much more sensitive to it. And I think, the th you know, my two kids and her kind of colluded, like, and I'm, you know, I'm wondering if, if you had that sort of dynamic as well. Oh, I mean, I, I remember having conversations with my husband, of, I, and I would say, Jim, you're going to turn them into closet eaters. You know, let me have some cookies. You know, let's have cookies in the house. Let's have biscuits. Let's have these things so they can learn how moderation. They can learn how to eat a, what I considered then a healthy diet, a healthy lifestyle, but know how to moderate so they don't feel like they have to go hide it. So I think we definitely, you know, had that same, I guess there's always one, but it's interesting because now that I'm following Adam a little bit on his journey and becoming plant-based myself, he's turning into his father in the sense that now every time I go to eat something, he goes, uh, Mom, did you read the in ingredients? You know, there might be oil in that. So now he's kind of doing the it's same thing. It's a little thing. different, though, because <laughs> she came to me asking for help. Yes, I did. I did. That, there was a big difference. And here's the thing about, about what you're talking about, how you, you, know, you would say you had conversations with Dad saying, that, you know, we're, I'm afraid we're turning them into closet eaters. Let's have the food in the house. The food isn't the problem. The food isn't the problem. The problem is the message and how it's conveyed. And my opinion is if you have kids and you're worried about, you know, how do I tell them, you know, or if they are eating a lot of fast food now, how do I say we're not going to do this anymore and I don't want you to do this? What you say is, look, what, what, my job is here as your parent is to keep you healthy and to help you make the best decisions. And I'm not talking about anything I'm talking about. is not who you are as a person. I'm talking about the behaviors I, don't, I would not like to see you engaging in because those things could cause you to get sick. And that's what I want you to know is that no matter what, I'm, I, I love who you are as a person. This is never... a this is about behavior. These behaviors are not going to be okay in the house because they promote disease and they, they cause me to be, be afraid. Yeah. So it's, it sounds like, I think with me as well, with, with your dad, it was the message was sort of wrapped up yeah. in, in a trauma yeah. that he experienced. And yeah. so it came out in a... In, in a hypercritical way. In a hypercritical, twisted, like the love kind of got 
um, got lost in the the, exactly. you know, the sort of the lost the, in the, the translation, yeah, in, in the fe- in the, so. the fear. Because what he was saying that was that was his way of saying "I love you," was to say, you know, moment on the lips, forever on the hips, so to speak. Um, and it affected me because, like I said, it made me think that I'm, there must be something broken or wrong with me for wanting these foods that aren't okay. Uh, the other thing that happened was I was very young. I think it was maybe 12, maybe even younger, that I was diagnosed with ADHD and put on medicine. And it wasn't ever really explained to me what ADHD is, what the medication is, why you take the medication. It was like, you have ADHD, here's the medicine, you take it. My understanding of that is there's something not right about you. Uh This medicine fixes it. Therefore, it sort of set a precedent for me that when the world says to me there's something wrong with you, I have to find a substance to fix it. I have to look outwardly for a pill. Yeah. That medicine is going to be the answer to all of life's problems. That don't worry about it because if if there's something about you that people don't like, there's a way, there's something else out there that you can do. There's a, a substance you can take to fix it. Yeah, and and the thing that was wrong with you wasn't like a limp. It was yeah. like getting sent to the principal's office. It was. Yeah. I didn't fit in. My my way of thinking. My way of. Uh, of existing didn't fit in with the environment and therefore and, and look in terms of ADHD what we're talking about is most of the time you're talking about multiple symptoms caused by multiple factors so you have your genetics your brain chemistry you also have the food that you're putting in your body and how it affects that brain chemistry you're talking about the environment in which you live in and which you learn in as a child what type of learner are you do you fit into the school system of learning all these factors that go in to create symptoms that are then diagnosed as ADHD. And the problem with the medicine is it treats every person the same way. And to treat everyone who is suffering from a condition caused by different unique factors with the same medication is just a lazy approach to treatment. It's just this sweep it under the rug type of thing. And not only to treat it with a drug, but with a mind-altering amphetamine. You're putting a mind-altering amphetamine onto, uh, uh, into a child who has a developing brain. Uh, and I think that that's kind of dangerous. But like I said, it, it really it changed the way that I looked at myself. It was like I was going to wait for people to tell me what was wrong, then I was going to find a substance to fix it. That was sort of my, my thinking was never yeah. to be okay. Not to never be okay with who I am, but... I can judge myself on who I am once, some, once I hear from somebody what's wrong with me and I alter myself to fix it. So, yeah. What was the effect of the ADHD medication on you, like globally? Uh, so, like in middle school, I was, very, I was a defiant kid anyways because I, you know, I, you know, like any kid. Um, Let the record show mother is smiling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anytime they said, oh, you're taking your medicine, of course, it was like, I would take it if they forced it to force me to, or I would just find some way to get rid of it because I just didn't want to take it. Why? Oh, because it was my parents telling me to take medicine. Okay. Yeah. So it wasn't like it was making you yeah. feel it. It was just... And it was such a low dosage then that uh, I didn't really notice any difference, nor was I expecting any difference. Um, and that was through middle school. But in high school, at the time, what was Ritalin was the prescribed medication for ADHD became Adderall. Adderall came out... In, it was the new super drug for this, and so my medication got switched. And uh, I was taking it, still taking a low dosage of it, uh, something like 10 milligrams a day. And I remember in my freshman year or sophomore year of high school, a friend of mine, you know, it was a weekend, him saying, 
are you coming out to this party this weekend? You've got to come out. It's, it's going to be like one of the best ones of the year. I was saying, you know, I can't. Because I was always behind in my schoolwork. Um, and I said, I can't. I got, I got so much work to catch up on. And they knew that I took Adderall. They asked me, well, don't you take Adderall? I said, yes. He said, well, why don't you just, you know, if you take a bunch of it, you can stay up all night and get all your work done. So why don't you come to the party on Sunday night, just take a bunch of your Adderall, and, and you'll get it done. And I thought to myself, well, if this medicine does that, why don't I just break, bring it to the party and I'll take extra of the party? <laughs> and so that's what I did. And, and, man, I'm telling you, the minute I used it as, as a, a recreational drug, I was instantly hooked because, <clears throat> you know, that, it, you know that, that movie Limitless? Yeah, yeah. In not such a lame Hollywood way, it's very much like that. It's just like, like you are, you just want to pass on every knowledge that you have to anyone who will listen for hours on end. You have like instant energy. You are this superhuman. You, I mean, because it's, it's amphetamine. That's what it is. It is amphetamine. Uh, so it's speed. Um, I had endless energy. I didn't want to eat. I, I could stay up for days. I could hyper-focus. I was not a type A personality then, but man, was I, did I believe I was on Adderall. And... At the time, I wasn't overweight, like really overweight, but I, had, I was a little chubby. And so, I, you know, I just moved to Austin recently and uh, didn't have a girlfriend. And, you know, like I said, I'm a sophomore in high school. And now I'm able to lose the weight I want to lose because I don't ever want to eat on this because it's an amphetamine. I'm able to hyper-focus on work. I'm able to become the type A personality that I thought I needed to be to make my dad proud. It was the answer to all of my problems. So, Lisa, what did what did you think? Like, did you notice? Did you know he was using it recreationally, or did you notice changes at this time? At that time, no, I did not know, uh-huh. and um, I would I have was, uh, you know, had no idea how he would get it because you know you had to have a prescription; it was controlled, and you well, know. I remember, at the time, it was being mailed to the house. Well, yeah. Uh, so um, I don't remember that, but I'm, no. but again, I don't. Um, I was not aware, um, and so much was going. On. It was a big time a change in our life, moving from Houston to Austin. Uh, my husband and I were adjusting. He was traveling a lot. I was dealing with the kids, two of which were very angry that we were there. One that was okay with it. So there was a lot going on, and I probably you know didn't even notice it and saw him seeming to have more. Uh, control over his homework and doing things, and so that to me was a good thing. You know, he was more into it. Okay, this school environment is working for him, where he had pretty much fought school environment all his entire life. Um, so, you know, at first I, I only saw the positive. I didn't see it. Right. I mean, it sounds like you know, just just upside so far. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there was, and it worked, man. Like, okay, so I, look, I, I, I'm, I'm a very defiant person. I, I like to do things the way that I do things. And so in high school, I didn't want to have to go to classes if I didn't enjoy the class and I could still understand the, the material. So I skipped a lot of classes and went to the ones I really did like, like my computer art classes and my theater classes and, and the classes with the girls that I liked. Um, and and so I skipped a lot of school, but I got all the work done. And, and so I created this environment where I got away with a lot. Um, and I got away with a lot. I, I believe I was getting away with a lot because of the drug. Um, and it created this like, s- like super ego 
that I had this false idea that I was like this some some amazing you know entitled person that oh I'm like super talented because I, mean, I mean to be honest I was talented in in, uh, in computer art and I was talented in theater um, and the drug helped me to be able to do those things at 110 percent for as long as I wanted and it worked so well that. For me at the time, I was able to get the scholarship that I wanted to the school that I wanted to go to uh, for the for the art that I wanted to go to, and and it seemed like you know I had I had a great girlfriend in, in high school. I had a lot of friends by the time I graduated high school. I was lean. I was happy, and you know all was well, right? So. Was it? I mean. Did- like you know, and I hear when I think about people who talk about addictions, and yeah. that even when they're you know when they're oh, should, u- when no. they're using, like when, when I look back on it, I mean all of the signs were there, you know, and I should have seen it. Uh, I think it was just for the first time I saw Adam fitting in, doing you know seemed to be you know excited about life and doing things that he enjoyed doing, but when I look back on it, um, because it happened so quickly, you know. I missed a lot of signs. Oh yeah, and, and I, I mean, mean a tremendous amount of signs. I was I was depressed as an individual because I was struggling to know who I was. I'm an identical twin uh, who, in high school, you're trying to find out who you are as an individual, and that's kind of difficult when you have someone who looks exactly like you and does everything that you do and, and likes the things that you like. And so there's that tension of, no, this is going to be my thing. This is going to be my thing, and and. And so that, that created tension, even though my brother Bobby and I are incredibly close, and we always have been. Um, uh, but, I, you know, I had a lot of depression because I didn't know who I was. And who I was was so strongly tied to, to being on this drug. And so that, that was the thing that enabled you to be successful, to, yeah. to have the energy, to be popular. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, so it sounds like the drug became... Like where you'd go, like, like I have to plug in my cell phone every night in order for exactly. it to have it. Assi- like the drug oh, yeah. was where you went absolutely. go to plug in Adam. Oh, it was, absolutely. It was necessary. It was necessary, and the dosage, you know, like with any substance, especially an amphetamine, uh, it quickly become habituated to it, and you quickly adapt to the dosages, and it has to keep going up and up mm-hmm. and up and up and up, and, and until you know, in high school, I was taking a lot. I was taking like, you know, like a hundred milligrams a day in high school um, to get through the day. And then in college, that's when, like, things really, it's, you know, because I'd been on it for, I've been abusing it at that point for almost four years at that, that time. And it really takes a toll on your metabolism by that point. Okay. So I want, I want to go back to the, the earlier thread of the pay, the pay, uh, Pepperidge Farm. Yeah. Or the Pillsbury, Pillsbury, right, yeah. the Pillsbury Pastries. Sorry, that wasn't a uh, yeah. product placement. <laughs> Nobody wants to be placed. No. No, no product wants to be placed on this podcast. <laughs> um, that you were eating in the dark mm. secretly. And now you're uh, – Pillsbury, you know, is one thing to eat secretly. But, like, taking drugs, taking vast amounts, it sounds like. I don't know what, what percentage of your allotted – Adderall you were actually consuming mm-hmm. like did you did you know you had to keep that secret oh my God, yeah. and how did you how did you how did you manage it how did you swing getting those amounts well I would I would steal it from the medicine cabinet and 
like let me let, like my mom like caught on that there was stuff there was pills going missing and she started hiding the medicine in different places in the house but if you're a drug addict the one thing you're really good at is finding drugs okay so there is no hiding place in your house that is safe from a drug addict that you live with so i'd always find it and i would take extra and i would you know keep it in a ziploc bag in my room and i would hide it because no one hides things better than a drug addict um and uh but but i mean how did you get keep getting prescriptions Oh, well, you know, look, if I ran out early, I ran out early. And, you know, I would buy some from friends at school. And, and then I would just go back to my doctor and get my regular prescription. Um, because as long as there was no indication of a problem, that's fine. If I ran out early, I bought from friends or, I, you know, whatever. So, so did the doctors ever, like, evaluate you and check up and make yeah. sure it was? No, look, man, this was. Well, he even lied to them and to us. So, uh, you know, he wasn't <clears throat> trying to get extra prescriptions from the doctors. Uh, he would try. Sometimes, luckily, the doctors would say no. Yeah, but that, that happened later. In right. high school, in high in school, high school let's, 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 let's You remember. weren't taking as much in high I was, school. I was still taking a lot, but let's, the, the signs of, of the addiction turning bad, turning negative, hadn't happened yet. So it seemed like on Adderall everything was fine, everything was working. Let's just keep giving to him. It's working. So the miracle of modern medicine. The miracle of modern medicine was taking place right in front of our eyes. Let's keep going. Um, and as long as there was like, you know, no, oh, his health is really going, you know, going to shit. Look at what's happening to him. Or you know, well, he's calling other doctors trying to get medication. You know, I'm, I've had enough with him. That's a felony kind of thing. As long as that's not happening, why would they be suspicious? There was no need to be, there was nothing to be suspicious of. We had no idea. I mean, I knew I had to keep it hidden. I knew I had, you know, because I knew he would try and take some from his brothers, so I kept all the medicines, you know, and would just hand it out, you know, as needed. Um, So you were the only one in the family taking it? Mm. No, his twin brother also at the time was taking. Uh Did you talk to your twin brother about it? Yeah, all the time. He knew... He knew, because at the time, we were, he knew that we were taking it rec- recreationally at parties. I mean, like, pretty much. So he also. Yeah. Um, but he didn't know that I was doing it, like, as much as I would do on the weekends every single day. Uh-huh. He did not know that. Not in high school. So, the, uh, you know, I, from what I know of twins, it's really hard to keep a secret yeah. from your twin. Was that, like, uh, you know, a, a lot of emotional energy going into that not really, secret? Not really, because I just, it was just my thing, you know? I just, it's just the one thing I never let him know. I mean, we, we didn't sleep in the same room in high school, and same, so, you know, it, it wasn't that difficult to keep secret. Gotcha. It's weird, because I'm having, you know, a, a different kind of experience of this podcast than I think I've ever had, which is when I'm talking to my guest... I'm, and, you know, Adam, you and I arranged this. I'm yeah. always, like, identifying with the guest. Mm-hmm. And in this case, like, Lisa, you're here, and I can, you know, people can't see your expressions as Adam's talking or as you're, like, like I see a real sort of, I don't know if it's, like, guilt or sadness. Like, I'm really empathizing with you. And I just keep wanting to, like, say, you know, there's no way you could have known it's okay. I understand. I totally get it. And I just want, I just wanted to kind of... Ex, you know, express that I feel like you're, you're, ho- you're holding a lot, and this journey must be incredibly poignant for you. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of guilt, of, of course, as the parent and the one who actually gave him the medicine. Um, 
and there's a lot of anger at myself as to uh, maybe his life could have been totally different. He wouldn't have had to go through all this pain if I would have just been more aware. And how much of this is my fault as a parent for not being aware and seeing all the signs, which are so easy to see when I look back. But I can't change the past. And I think that's as much as Adams had to go through a journey to repair himself and get strong and get off all the meds and change his life and turn it around. I, as a parent through this, also have had to go through a similar path in the sense of getting, shedding the guilt uh, because I can't change it, um, trying to understand more so that I can deal today, not bringing that guilt along with me today and not overcompensate for it, but also to accept responsibility uh, so that I can move forward and interact with my other siblings and, you know. But, no, it, it's, there, there's a part of me that just wants to get out of the chair, go outside and say, you know, I, I can't go through this. This is too hard just to talk about it and bring it all back up. Um, but I'm so proud of Adam. I'm so fortunate that he went through this that had the wherewithal, some of the learning that we gave him along the way, I think did pay off, and the strong, responsible human being that we always hoped he would be did come out in the end uh, on the other side. We don't, we don't know how it's no. going to... No, we don't. We don't we, and we don't know the gifts that we're giving that may look like not gifts. So let's, uh, let's get you through rock bottom so that we can turn this story around. Yes. We're not even close to rock bottom yet. No. So, yeah, in, in college is where things like really got bad because the drug really quickly started to stop working. And I started taking more and more. And, you know, in high school, I was a high school kid. So I was like 16, 17 years old. I could eat as much as I wanted. And I was on Adderall, so I could eat as much as I wanted or whatever I wanted. And the weight would stay off. That stopped working in college. And I started to put on weight. And the need for the drug became more intense than the need to be successful in school. And I started doctor shopping, which is where you have multiple doctors prescribing the same medication without each other knowing about it. And did, did you figure this out on your own? Like, or did you talk to other people? Like, how, did, how, did you, how does a drug addict get good at being a drug addict? I mean, <clears throat> I just, you know... I, I don't, I don't think I actually, like, it's not like I went online and was like, how do I become a good drug addict? Um, I, I just, you know, I went to another doctor and, and, you know, I wasn't filing under insurance. I would just pay out of pocket. And there's no insurance. There's no, there's no paper trail. There's no way for them to know. And, uh, and so I went to this other doctor and, you know, started getting Adderall from that doctor as well as getting, you know, Adderall from my, red, my regular doctor who was uh, prescribing, prescribing me the medication normally. And it just it just kept getting worse and worse, and I couldn't control it. And uh, the weight started to really get out of control. And at some point, I just I just you know I was failing classes, and I decided, look, I got this. I got a, an amazing opportunity to work on a, a movie because I was in art school studying film and animation. I got an opportunity to work on a movie in Austin with some really cool guys like Luke Wilson and uh, Will Ferrell and all these guys back in Austin. I'm gonna drop out of school. And because here's an opportunity for me to work with you know, movie stars. I'm going to drop out of school. But the real reason was I didn't want to have to deal with school. I could be back in Austin where I knew my friends who had the drug that I liked. Uh, and I'd be making money uh, and, and be able to get more. Uh-huh. And, 
And, you know, I worked on the movie. It was a great experience. And after the movie was done, I got another job but quickly lost it because my my situation just became un, unmanageable. So did you do a good job on the movie with, with Luke Wilson and Will yeah, Ferrell? Yeah, I did. And, and he and I, still we still, uh, we still talk every now and then. He's a, he's a great guy. Um, and he's, he was really amazing on set of knowing that it was my first time working in the movies. And he and Dave Buschel, the other producer allowed me to like experience the magic of movie making without letting it be ruined by the bureaucracy of movie making. Um, and you know, they've been really great. You know, when I was living in Santa Monica, I would see Luke Wilson a few times and you know, he took me to a movie premiere with him and, uh, we had coffee a few times. He's just a great guy. And, um, so at the same time as you're like living the dream, right? So you're into art and movies and here's like a, you know, a two comic heroes and one of them sort of takes you under his wing a little bit and you're getting like feedback that you're doing a great job. Something else, something fundamental is still is crumbling. It's crumbling, yeah. And it, and it crumbled fast because after that, it just, the weight just, I mean, within a few years of losing my job, I became a hoarder in an apartment. Uh, I became a fast food addict uh, and I became an obese, severely struggling drug addict. Um, to where my 24-hour day looked like this. I would get up in the morning, I would go to a place called Torchy's Tacos, uh, get four to six potato, egg, and cheese breakfast tacos with a large Coke. For lunch, my first lunch, I would go to McDonald's and get a double quarter pounder, supersized double quarter pounder meal with an extra double quarter pounder. Uh, for my second lunch, I would go to Whataburger and get the honey barbecue chicken strip sandwich uh, with, um, with a honey barbecue chicken strip sandwich meal with extra large fry and extra large soda. For dinner, I'd order an extra large pizza from Papa John's with beef on it. And then around 3 in the morning, I would go back to Whataburger for four other breakfast on a bun sandwiches with sausage. During that day, drink probably 16 regular sodas, and on top of that, take 450 milligrams of Adderall. Okay, so I'm just doing the math in my head. We're up to somewhere between eight and 10,000 calories a day. Yeah, it's insane. I'm sure any parent sitting at home and listening to this is saying, where were the parents? I was and, 25 years no, old. No, but I'm gonna say, the problem <laughs> is you were 25. Yeah. All right, um, but when he came home from college and, you know, obviously we said, well, and at that point, no idea of the total abuse of the medication. We said, if you're dropping out, and it was on the quarter system. So I said, well, if you want to take off this quarter and then go back. And, and I'm guessing as a, as a getting to be a very, very good drug addict, he had a really convincing oh, he, story and he, exciting, and this is a good career move. Right. Everything made total sense. He could make it sound like it was the perfect thing. Um, so he was also an adult, and, and as much as I had an, kind of an, under, uh, an inkling that there was a severe, severe problem going on, there was no way for me to get him to, to accept it, to acknowledge it, to ask for help, and I would try. Um, I would see him come over, and he'd be sitting there, and the legs, I mean, you could tell he was on, about ready to crawl out of his skin. Um, he would smell. Yeah. Um, he had no social life. Um, and this was not my Adam. This was not the boy that I sent off to college, uh, or the young man I sent off to college. Um, and all I could do was try and be there, try and talk to him, which he would always go, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm just, you know, 
okay, so I put on weight, you know, um, never acknowledgement and wouldn't, if I approached him on that, would shut it down. Um, so all I could do was wait and, and pray that he would someday come and ask for the help that we were ready to give and to keep him safe, as safe as I could. So every time he would leave the house angry because we had tried to confront him on something and he would tear out in his car, um, I just prayed that I would see him again and that he would be okay and someday ask for the help. We did cut him off. of, of There was no support at all coming from us financially, hoping to, you know, thinking that the only way we'll get him to accept the fact that he needs help is to hit what we consider rock bottom so that he would finally ask for help. Yeah. I'm feeling empathy for what I, I'm guessing. I mean, I'm probably projecting, but maybe not. Like an incredible feeling of like this vortex of helplessness and like self-questioning. Like, how did you know we're we're a we're a good family? We've we don't beat him, and like we we did everything right. We gave him birthday gifts, and what happened? Like, do. You, <laughs> You go through that, and the, what you finally realize is that it's not anything in particular that you did as a parent. Um, that uh, what it took me a long time to figure is I can't fix it. It was his problem to fix. Mm-hmm. Um, Could you tell when your mom oh God, yeah. made made that decision when she when she stopped trying to fix you? Oh, I haven't stopped. Yeah. I just understood it. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, could you tell when your mom was like struggling with the, I don't know what happened, but I just got to keep him safe. Uh, never could, stopped it, trying to fix me. Uh, <laughs> I'm working on that. That's part of my but, journey. You know, interestingly, uh, the la- I think the last attempt that they did was they wanted to, uh, they offered me the opportunity to attend the Engine 2 immersion, the very first Engine 2 immersion back in 2010. Uh, and my dad approached me saying, you know, look, Whole Foods is doing this thing with Rip Esselstyn and, and I want you to go and I can get you in. Uh, you got to go if, if you're willing to. Now, I was, I was very afraid of my dad's disapproval at this time. So I said yes uh, and I went and I listened to everything that was being said. I agreed with it all. It all made sense. But I was very much a drug addict. And I was a drug addict there, and I was using my drugs there. So I wasn't desperate enough to want to change um, until about two years after that when uh, I was in my apartment and uh, I suffered an overdose. Um, and I, was, I woke up from the overdose, which was terrifying, on the floor of my apartment in a puddle of my own vomit, um, surrounded by fast food trash, surrounded by empty pill bottles, and realizing that I had really set in motion uh, a series of events, that I had started down a path that was going to lead to one place. And that place was my mom and my dad asking themselves for the rest of their lives why their son felt he needed to eat and drug himself to death. Should we pause it here? Excuse me? Is that session's probably going? Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, no, let's, let's, uh, 35, 55. But you might have to, you need him to speed up to get to pre- closer to present day, or? Okay. Are we recording now? Yeah. You can add okay. it. Okay. Yeah, um, that was going to result in my parents spending the rest of their lives wondering why their son had to eat and drug himself to death. And more importantly than that, 
uh, I realized that this, since this was a lifestyle disease, addiction is a lifestyle disease, uh, my obesity is a lifestyle disease, that there's really only one rock bottom, and that is if I had died from that overdose, that would have been rock bottom. I, I did death. not want that rock bottom. That wasn't. <laughs> rock bottom is death, and I was going to prove to myself that I could come back from where I was. And so I picked up the phone and I called my parents and I asked them for help. And I didn't admit to the overdose. I didn't even admit that I was a drug addict. I just said I need help. And two weeks later, they checked me into rehab, um, which is terribly uncomfortable. The first 24 hours of rehab are really, really dehumanizing. Uh, even even when you voluntarily voluntarily walk in, uh, you know they gotta search you. They gotta do like a, a, a strip search of you like, where they medically examine your your body. So the assumption is you're you're completely untrustworthy in your current condition. Yeah. And then they they do medical tests. And not only did I had I not weighed myself in probably four years, so not only did I find out that I was over 320 pounds. But uh, I also found out that I was a type 2 diabetic with high cholesterol and blood pressure that was so high that they were, they had to monitor me every morning because they were afraid I was going to have a heart attack the first week, um, which was probably the most uh, I guess sobering (laughs) uh, diagnosis I ever got. It's, It's interesting that, you know, the scene you describe while very, very personal, like, uh, you know, it's so archetypal. Like, I can picture it in a movie. I'm wondering yeah. like, whether, like, you had, you had so many opportunities to say, boy, this really is unacceptable. And it was like a movie scene yeah. <laughs> that you woke up into yeah. that, uh, that, that got your attention, sort of as the, as the cine, you know, cinematographer or artist, whatever. Right. Yeah, that is interesting. Because it is, it's kind of cliche, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, the doctor told me this, and I remember looking at the doctor saying to him, being very ashamed of the fact that, you know, not only am I a drug addict, but I'm approaching morbid obesity, if not already there, um, and I'm just, like, contributing to the standard American system of disease that is, you know, as my dad has, has mentioned that, you know, uh, chronic Western disease is, is bankrupting the country. Um, which made me feel bad about myself as a person who was sick and obese. But um, do you really think you were thinking that way? I was. Oh. Um, uh, so, so like all of a sudden, you're taking on like the entire problems of the Western world are are your fault? No, but like that I'm part of the problem. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, that's. But, I mean, you know, your mom just expressed a little surprise at that. I'm, yeah. I'm like shocked yeah. and amazed that you would, you would think in that way like yeah. for me i would think i'd be so solipsistic and so just focused on myself and you like you have this this impulse that i think is it's it may not have been helpful but it's really be- coming from like a beautiful place like i don't want to be part of other, anybody want, else's just, problem yeah, it's not only that i didn't want to be part of i guess it's interesting because I, I didn't want to be part of what my dad thought was the problem um and uh and i remember asking the doctor saying what is the what are you worried about this? Because I needed, like, I'm. The doctors are very soft in their in their delivery of this. Like, well, you have type two diabetes. Mm-hmm. Your blood sugar is, you know, almost four hundred. We're gonna put you on some meds. We'll see how it goes. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it sounds like here, it's a piece of candy. You'll be fine. Shake it off. Shake it off. And I'm like, so I, I, I like to know what the hell is the problem. 
And I said, are you worried about this? And he like chuckled. He goes, yes. I was like, well, then can you please be serious with me and, and not talk to me like I'm an infant and tell me like what are the chances of me ever going off this medication? And he goes, I think if you put in, I've, I think I've seen people, if they put in a lot of work, they might be able to go on half their medication in two years. And... <laughs> Right? Um, First of all. Um, And I I walked out and I told him, I said, well, you might as well call my therapist because I'm not going to any of my sessions today. I was so upset. And he said, that's fine. Uh, You know, just go to your dormitory because we had dorms. You can't leave your dorm uh, in rehab. The place I went to, CRT Center, is like a campus setting uh, where, like, one building is for your therapy, then you have the guys' dorms, you have the girls' dorm, you have the rec center, you have all that stuff. So it's really like you have this outdoor, you don't feel like you're locked in. Uh-huh. Uh, so I spent the day in my dormitory and I called my, my dad and I said, Dad, you know, they're saying I'm a type 2 diabetic and then I have heart disease. And How I, old were you at this point? 30. And I remember uh, him taking it very well. He didn't get upset. Like, uh, he would never have been upset at me about it, but he didn't get upset by the, the news. And he goes, well, Adam, let's, let's think about this. He goes, just say you are. You know, which him doing that was a brilliant thing, and I don't even think he realizes it. Uh, just say you are. So maybe you're not, right? Uh-huh. But just say you are. You attended the engine to immersion. You know that all of this is caused by the foods that you eat. You know it's reversible. None of this is permanent. So if you do want to reverse it, you can. So you know what to do. If you have it, you'll take care of it. If you don't, you don't. Um, And so I realized in that moment that if I'm the problem, I'm going to be the solution. Um, I feel it's such a beautiful moment where it sounds like something shifted and your defiance was now pointed at the frigging doctors. My defiance was pointed at anybody I could get angry enough, at, angry enough at in order to change my behavior. Right, but all of a sudden, like, it sounds like your dad became an ally yeah. instead of the one you were defying. Yeah, yeah exactly. I'm, I'm just curious, um, like we just sort of threw in the Esselstons and the engine to immersion. Like, how did you discover them? Like, you know, totally parallel storyline. Yeah, no, I wasn't really that aware of it. Uh, my husband was because he, he works at Whole Foods Market uh-huh. and was familiar with RIP and Engine 2. And obviously, because he's in the industry, was aware of a lot of the changes that were taking place in the growth of the plant-based lifestyle and the changes it can make. I was totally unaware of it. Um, so your, your eating at home didn't, didn't it reflect it or didn't no, go? No, no. I mean, it was, it was what I thought a healthy lifestyle wasn't a what I consider not to be high in fat. I mean, it was your standard animal protein, which was not fat. That's animal I'm, I'm protein. I'm doing air quotes right here for you people. Yeah. Lean meat. Yes, it was. It was the lean, grass-fed beef, you know, or the the you know the range-free chicken, um, you know, and a fresh vegetable and a fresh starch. I mean, I thought I was, you know, and there weren't a lot of uh, candies and cookies and the our processed food but very little processed food so the Pil- Pillsbury habit had ended that had ended that had ended um, and so it was very you know everything was fresh and a lot of fresh vegetables that I would eat mm-hmm. not everybody else was crazy about it um, but what I had cut out was processed food I saw processed food as being bad uh-huh. but I thought we were having a very balanced you know healthy lifestyle at home yeah. but I was totally yeah. unaware I just knew that uh, what I was glad to see is that Adam was actually finally angry at himself 
um, and getting to this and that he knew that there was, he could make the changes. Yeah. And that was huge. Gotcha. It was a little difficult to do it, though, in rehab, because in rehab, they prepare food for you, and you have to eat what they make, uh-huh. and, like, you have to eat. Um, so I wasn't able to make any changes, but when I, after, after uh, rehab, I moved into a sober living facility, uh, and I remember walking into the kitchen of the sober living facility and just being shocked, because it was everything that you ever saw in a commercial on Nickelodeon as a kid. It was Eggo waffles and microwavable pizzas and fruity pebbles and sodas and just it. I remember thinking to myself, I can leave here sober three months down the line, a year down the line, but I'll never leave healthier. Uh huh. At that point, were you starting to, or were you conceptualizing the, those foods as drugs? Yeah. Like when? When did that? Realization. Well, I, like, I, I knew that they were as soon as I left the engine to immersion. Like I said, I completely agreed with everything. But I was mm-hmm. such a drug addict that, that nothing mattered at all. Uh-huh. So, uh, this is, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm taking these drugs and I'm eating this druggy food. And so you got it. Yeah. And, then when you, and then when you managed to get the, the Adderall out of your system. Yeah. Was it just Adderall or were there other drugs? I mean, like there were other drugs I was doing for fun, but the only thing I was really addicted to that I had to have was Adderall. Uh-huh. And the only reason I didn't switch to meth was because I didn't want to be a meth head. You know? Um, it's too cliche. It's way too cliche. <laughs> yeah. So, um... Or too hardcore. Yeah. Um, but, so in rehab, I walked up to the house manager and I told him that I'm a type 2 diabetic with heart disease. I'm trying to reverse my heart disease and my diabetes, and I'm trying to do it on a plant-based diet. What can we do? Uh, and he said, well, tell me what you need to be successful. And I said, well, I'm a seventh-generation Texan who's a fast food addict, and I've never eaten a plant-based diet before, but I'll tell you what I like. I like oatmeal. I like broccoli, black beans, and fruit. Can we get those for the house for me? And he said, yes. So that's what I ate every day for every meal for 10 months. And as a result of that, in the beginning, I was doing egg whites because I, I couldn't get them into my stomach without it. Um, and until I got used to the taste of the, of the food, that's what I did. But as soon as that wasn't necessary anymore, I cut that out. But within two months, I completely reversed the diabetes and the heart disease. So oatmeal, black beans, broccoli, and fruit. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, I, feel, I, feel, I feel like there's like a best-selling diet book in there. Hey, man. The rehab diet. I guarantee you McDougal will sign off on it. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, the, uh, the diet worked, and it's all because of everything I learned from the engine to immersion, from Rip Esselstyn as, uh, you know, he, they really gave me the foundation and, and the, the like, I'll say it in the most, another cliche way, the, the faith that the science was fact. Um, but mm-hmm. the first few weeks were, I was crying all the time. I was crying and struggling with this question of if I knew that this is what I needed to do, why do I not want to do it? Why every single day is it a fucking struggle for me to eat this food? And then I happened upon Doug Lyle's The Pleasure Trap TED Talk on YouTube. Somebody recommended mm-hmm. it to me. And it answered that very question, that there was a biological problem that had been created as a result of the environment in which I lived in. That in the modern environment, I was so accustomed 
to super normal foods, foods that have such a high amount of calories, salt, fat, and sugar, and trigger such a dopamine response in the brain that your body believes that it has to be biologically successful. That this mm-hmm. must be biologically successful because food only comes from nature. It, mm-hmm. Burgers must grow on a tree. <laughs> and so this was simply a biological problem that biological fact states it has to work itself out. That there would be a day when I woke up and this wasn't going to be a chore. And that eventually there would be a day when I woke up and I would look forward to it. And <laughs> what I learned from that was all I have to do to get to that day was be comfortable being uncomfortable. If I could do that, I would be successful. And it created an incredible environment for me as a drug addict who's trying to deal with emotional and psychological problems. That at the end of the day, no matter the psychological problems I was dealing with and no matter the emotional trauma I was trying to get over with, whether I felt like I failed or succeeded in that, at the end of the day, I made positive change in terms of my health. Because my environment in terms of my food didn't allow for me to make destructive lifestyle habits. Didn't allow for me to damage my body. And that's a powerful thing. Because no matter how bad I felt about myself at the end of the day, I could always say I'm better than I was the day before. Mm. I'm, I'm, th- I'm thinking back. Like I'm wondering if this book ends that first diagnosis. Like there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And I need a pill to fix it. And then hearing Doug Lyle say there's nothing yeah, wrong with any of us. That's exactly right. One of the most powerful statements I think Doug Lyle says without, without actually saying it in his talk is that, you know, that feeling that you get when you're trying something new or you're trying to lose weight. Like, I, I, I know that feeling of, of, trying, of feeling hopelessness and feeling shame and feeling like you've fallen so far from who you are and that there's just something broken about you, that you'll just never like this way of living because... The, I, I just must have to eat these destructive foods because it's the only things I like. Well, it, it, that's not happening in you because there's something broken. The reason I got to be 320 pounds, a type 2 diabetic who was addicted to fast food wasn't because there was anything wrong with me. It was because my body was operating exactly as it should in the modern environment. That my body is perfectly normal. And that if I switch to eating a plant-based diet, in a body that operates normally, it should get normal results. And the typical results are pretty incredible. They are reversing diabetes and heart disease in two months. And then they are losing 100 pounds in 10 months and getting off of eight prescription medications within a year, including antidepressants and mood stabilizers. I suddenly just had a, a, uh, like a spasm of outrage, and I'm going to express it. And I don't know if you guys want to go there with me or not. But it, it suddenly just occurred to me, like for the first time ever in my life, that when you're describing like this crazy environment, yeah. the food environment that we're, that we're living in, and it's, it's, almost, it's inevitable that all of us become addicted, yeah. that the same thing can be said for you are mismatched to your school environment. Yeah. And that, this, and that the way we do school, oh, absolutely. There's, there's two, three, 5% of kids who will thrive who in it. Who are mastery learners, yeah. And, and everybody else is, well, you're, you're going to fail, so we're going to have to do something. We're either going to let you fail or let you think you're a student. Or stupid. the teachers are going to say that they demand that you go on attention deficit disorder medication. Right, so that, so that they can manage their class. Yeah, exactly. Oh, this, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. yeah. You know, of how I think our modern-day public schools, even some of the private schools, are failing our children, yeah. uh, trying to... Because I know when Adam and his brother started school, they loved learning. They still do. They still do. But they loved learning. They were excited about it. They wanted to shout it out, and that was part of the problem, is that they didn't believe they had to raise their hand. If they knew the answer, they shouted it out. 
Um, and I think that Adam, he, he went through this constant struggle of trying to feel good about himself, but in a day, every day he was in a place that he didn't feel good. Yeah. So. Yeah, the school system is, is... But that, like I said, that's a whole nother... Yeah. Well, I, I mean, uh, yeah, probably not this one, but I'd love to, <laughs> I'd love to do that one because I've done, I've done the research yeah. on, like, on the ADHD meds. Oh, yeah, and they're it's, terrible. It's, it's shocking, like... The, the, the outcome measures upon which they, res- they get improvement are all sort of classroom management issues. Yeah. Teachers report that their kids are more compliant, they are. they're more docile, they have less energy. But it's not just the teachers. I think a lot of parents, and I, I, I pray that I wasn't one of those parents thinking, well, if I give Adam this pill, he'll be easier to manage. Because he wasn't hard to manage. It wasn't that. I just saw so much potential in him that wasn't coming out in school that I thought the pill would help. But I think a lot of parents are also very negligent in doing the homework and making sure that this is the best method to help their child grow and achieve the, their highest or happiness uh, is by taking this pill. But it does make them, you know, they're much easier to manage. They're not hyper. They're not going all over the place. You don't have to actually learn how to parent. Unfortunately, it's, it's a medication, so it's treating the symptom. Right which means that we're never getting to the root cause of the problem, which is actually caused by several different things. Yeah. Uh, one is, am I in the right learning environment for me? Two is, how am I fueling myself in order to create the right brain chemistry and the right uh, sustainable energy? Uh, I mean, when you think back of when you were talking about the Pillsbury, the, and I had no idea that the food that I was giving him before he would go to school covered with sugar you know, and the fruity pebbles or whatever, you know, the, the breakfast cereal. I always tried, okay, I'm making eggs and, you know, we're going to have something good and healthy. But I was giving him all the wrong food yeah. to go off to school and be able to sit at a desk and listen and be attentive. But I had no idea, and I didn't even know where to go look or that there was another way of doing it that worked for me. Yeah. It's the way I grew up. I went to school. Right. So, I mean, you're so you, think, you're very much a victim of the all the forces that we know about that are trying to keep us, you know, dumb and docile and consuming. Yeah. I, I guess mean, I don't like to think of myself as a victim. Uh, I think that that. Well, I, your, I just never took the initiative <laughs> to find out that there was a better way. Well, you were a mark, let's yeah. say. Well, let's or, say. or I was just, you know, I, I, there were plenty of things in life I challenged and I stood up and I guess be an activist about. But when it came to that, I didn't think that there was another way. I, you know, I would make sure. They had yeah, good food. They weren't eating macaroni and cheese every night. Right, but what he's were, saying is that you believe that because someone told you right, that was right, right. and they knew, they knew otherwise. Right, right. So, and I didn't challenge it. Yeah. And I fell right into the same. And, and I'm not saying that anybody else that hasn't come over to the plant-based lifestyle is living in this la-la land. You know, But it, it's a journey. It's something we all have to individually seek out and learn yeah. On our own when we're ready. Right. But I think the, the, for me the point is I don't care what people do. I like them to make the decision based on good information. Yeah. So like if you hadn't gone to the Engine 2 immersion, you might have, you, yeah. what would have happened? You would have gone to rehab, yeah. and then what? Yeah. You probably yeah. would have been back in rehab because you would have. I, I had absolute plans of going to rehab, getting back to square one, which was like reset the drug dependency and get right back on it. Like that was my plan. Um, because I was like, I was going there to fight the depression and the drug addiction. I could, as long as I got back to square one, I could control it this time. Like that was the idea. But then I got the diagnosis and was like, 
regardless of whether I get the depression under control, I'm going to die of the food. And death was my rock bottom. I didn't want that. I'm, I'm like to this day, I'm very afraid of death. I'm, like I'm just like super terrified of it. So, um, so what what happened then? You did your your um, the sober living program on your four your four food groups. My four food groups. Let's 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 like raise this trajectory. Let's yeah. let's let's get happy. Yeah. So like I said, uh, I lost a hundred pounds in ten months. And within a year, I was off of every medication I was put on rehab, which was eight prescription medications for both chronic disease and mood and behavior disorder. Um, did, how, did you, is, how did you find doctors who were willing to take you off the meds that, you're, that they think you're supposed to be on for life? Uh, well, it's interesting because I went to uh, my endocrinologist at month four, and I actually stopped taking the diabetes medicine uh, at month two because the medicine was making me very hypoglycemic. So, again, a little defiant uh, Well, I mean, like, I, it's hard to operate when your blood sugar levels are in the high 50s. Um, uh, so, you know, I was like, forget this. I can't see the guy for another two months. I'm just not going to take the meds. This is not making me feel good. Like, walking around outside, you know, bursting into dizzy sweats doesn't feel good. So I stopped taking the medication. I went to see my endocrinologist. And I remember his face because he didn't know that I'd stopped taking it and didn't know that I went switched my diet to a plant-based diet. Looked at me and goes, oh, my God, the med- medicine's working. Like he had this look of shock on his face like he never intended the medicine to work or had never seen it work. And I said to him, I said, well, I don't really know if that's true. And he goes, well, no, we're going we're gonna to let you start taking half the medicine now. And I said, I don't want to do that. He goes, why? I go, because I haven't been taking it for two months. What do you mean you haven't been taking it for two months? Well, I switched to this plant-based diet, and my blood sugar has been getting way too low on the medicine, so I just stopped taking it. And he looked at me, and he said, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. And <laughs> now, look, I wanted to be like, well, why would you not tell me this day one? But I got to think back t- to who I was when he met me. Uh, so he, he gets a pass on that one. He gets a pass you on... You see some of the defiance that comes out in him so naturally uh-huh. that in every aspect of his life growing up was there and present. Right, and, 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 and we, you know, I think it's our, our job to create a world in which that, that is a gift and not a deficit. Yeah. Which, and now it is. Now it is. I, uh, I stood up and I told him, I said, thank you for your services, but uh, I will no longer be requiring them, and, and, just, and just walked out. And, uh, you know, it gave me something that I hadn't felt in a long time, which was self-worth. Uh, and I think that self-worth, for someone who is experiencing a very low point in their life, self-worth makes you feel like you're worth saving every single day. Mm. And it pushes you further. Uh, and especially the recognition that eating a plant-based diet, the meal on a plate was an act of self-care. It was an act of self-love. It was me saying to myself, I matter today. My health matters today. I'm choosing today to make health and recovery a priority. I'm choosing today to be sober uh, it made my affirmations actions that my affirmation of sobriety wasn't just a gratitude in the morning, which I do, but it was also a, a repeated action on a daily basis. Um, and I think that that's a powerful thing. So was your approach to sobriety informed by like 12 step? It, that, that's what they wanted me to do, but I didn't, I didn't, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like the 12 step because they, they kept talking to me about things I could, I had to avoid. I don't want to avoid my old life. I want to live my new life. Uh-huh. You know? 
And so I'm not looking at every day as what do I have to avoid, what do I have to avoid. I, I'm looking at every day as what do I get to experience. What am I using now to enhance my life? But not forgetting the lessons you learned through that struggle. Right, but I don't need to go back and, and be like, all right, we don't, how many days sober do you have, you know, and, and, and all that stuff. That's fine. Accountability is great and everything, but abstinence creates fear. Abstinence creates a fear of living. I do not wake up every day saying, I'm going to eat this because I don't eat these foods. I'm going to wake up every day saying, I get to eat these foods. Mm. And I get to live this sober life. Uh-huh. And I'm not, I, I don't even like to use the term sober. Like I'm, like, I'm not somebody that I once was before my drug addiction. I'm not the sober version of me. I am not, I'm someone I've never been before. So I don't even really like the term sober. Yeah, I'm sober. But I'm just like, it, drug use is just not a part of my life anymore. So it's not like I avoid drugs and therefore I'm sober. Just, drug use is not part of my life. It's not, it's, it's, the, the idea of it never comes into play. My life is so far removed from who I used to be. So it's weird. I think that my recovery is very much the idea that every single day I, I, I wake up and I say, how can I be comfortable being uncomfortable? Because early on in my recovery, I wasn't waking up saying, all right, be prepared. I might be uncomfortable today. I woke up planning on making sure I was uncomfortable. Uh-huh. I, lo- I, I love that so much. I woke up every day planning on it being frustrating as hell. Because only then did I know I was doing the right thing. Only then did I know I was making a, making a change. That's why when I go to the, like, that's why running is so great for me. Because it is a purposeful act of being comfortable with being uncomfortable. There's going to be a point in that run when I don't want to go any further. There's going to be a point in that run where I can say, yeah, I can go further, but eh, it's good enough today. Or there's going to be a point in that, because I, I like doing a lot of the CrossFit stuff, there's going to be a point where I can say, I've done enough pull-ups, or I've done enough, you know, whatever, done enough curls, I've done enough, you know, squats. But enough isn't enough. Enough is stopping before you're uncomfortable. And I have got to find a way to be comfortable with being uncomfortable every single day because it is a practice of mindfulness. It is me being present in the body. It is me saying, what do I do to get myself through this moment? How do I, how do I connect with the breath to help me get, my, get myself through this feeling of being uncomfortable in the safest and most effective way possible that is a healthy way of doing it? Like, don't break through it. Move through it. You know? Like, if you punch a wall really, really hard, you're going to break your fist. You're not going to get through it. But if you slowly push on that wall with enough force, finally that thing's going to come down. It's like I couldn't run through a wall, but if I got enough people behind me or if I got, you know, a tool that I needed to push that wall over, I could do it. I just got to figure out the best way to move through it. I think Tim Coffin makes that analogy, and I think it's beautiful. And if I were to try and punch through a wall, I couldn't do it. But if I pushed hard enough for a long enough amount of time, I could push that wall over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've just, I mean, it's not like discomfort is a, a, a choice. It's not an optional thing. It's either, yeah. either going to mug you or, yeah. or you can go out looking for it yeah. and fight it on your terms. Exactly. Yeah, and that's what recovery is. Like when I say that there's only one rock bottom, David Clark said this to me, or I, he either said it on a podcast, uh, and then one time we were talking, he said, he doesn't believe in, in people when they say, oh, my rock bottom was this, my rock bottom was this. There's only one rock bottom, death. Especially when we're talking about addiction, because addiction is a lifestyle disease. And I believe it's the same way as type 2 diabetes. I was a type 2 diabetic. I had the disease of diabetes. It was caused by my lifestyle. I stopped living that lifestyle. I switched to a lifestyle that reversed that disease. I don't have it anymore. I'm not a diabetic. 
If I start eating Twinkies every single day and burgers like I was, guarantee you that disease comes back. I was an addicted person who was struggling with addiction. I switched the lifestyle that promoted it. I no longer suffer from the disease of addiction. Guarantee you, though, if I start using my drugs long enough, I'll become an addict again. I don't see myself as an addict to drugs. I see myself as having an addictive personality because, let's face it, that's what human beings are. The, human, the average human has 60,000 thoughts a day. Do you know what percentage of those thoughts they have the, that are the exact same the very next day? 90% of your thoughts that you have today, you will have tomorrow. If we're not creatures of habit, what are we? <laughs> I mean, come on. That's what I am, and I'm, I'm very much addicted to this new lifestyle. But I'm not a drug addict anymore, and I don't consider myself the, the idea. Like, that's the other thing about AA is they say, once an addict, always an addict. Well, do you want me to come back here and tell you that I'm an addict every single day and say that I'm still suffering from addiction? I'm sorry. I'm just not with it. I don't, I don't agree. I love that because, you know, this, this gets very, very controversial, probably worse than the school conversation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but the stats on AA um, recidivism they're are... They're pretty miserable. They're, yeah. Uh, it's not an evidence-based program. No, it's not. And, and the other thing is, as a drug addict who nearly died on the floor from an overdose, I'm going to tell you right now, the, the, most, the deadliest substance abuse on the planet is the standard American diet. It is the most abused, socially encouraged destructive substance on the planet that is given to infants on a daily basis. And we are addicting our kids at a very young age. And let's look at the statistics. We're going to lose over a million people this year to the standard American diet. All overdoses from all drugs combined this year are 55,000 that are going to result in death. 55,000 to a million. Right. Which is more deadly? The 55,000 or the million pe- or the 1 million people as a result of uh, substance mm-hmm. abuse? Right. And I'm hearing the echo of how we began this conversation with your dad. Yeah. You know, and, and saying, like, it's okay. You know, we need to have some cookies in the house. And, like, and on some level, there's a contradiction there. Yeah. Right. But on, but on this other level of, like, if we're all addicted to something and we're addicted to our thoughts and we're addicted to um, our, our fears and our traumas and we don't kind of, like, go and chase them. And go chase them down and try to, you know, mm-hmm. when we learn how to be uncomfortable, then we get to transcend the demons yeah. that, are, that, are, that are twisting us. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So let's, let's, uh, let's bring it home. You're, you're, you're now giving back yeah, to the absolutely. world. Can you talk about your work? So I work for Whole Foods Market Medical and Wellness Center in Austin, Texas at the Global Headquarters. It's a fully realized clinic. We have two doctors uh, that are primary care physicians. We have two health coaches, a behavioral health specialist, and an acupuncturist. And we service the employees of Whole Foods Market uh, and, and, and their families. And the purpose of it is to very much base around the idea that plant-based nutrition is the key to reversing disease and creating health and wellness. Um, so you come in, and let's say you're a type 2 diabetic. You come in, the, the primary care physicians treat you. We, we, you know, they, they get your numbers, we do your lab work, um, and they put you on the medication, but then they also require that you work with a health coach, like myself, or, or Lisa Rice is the other uh, amazing health coach. Um, and, I, and Andy Joe is also there. She's on maternity leave. Uh, she just gave birth to her son, Hank, um, who looks just like her, thank goodness. Um, <laughs> sorry, Mark. Uh, but, uh, <clears throat> and I will work with you for an hour every session to help you adopt a plant-based lifestyle so that you never have to walk through our doors again 
and it is about preventative medicine. And it's pretty incredible. And I also work with Engine 2 as a speaker uh, at their immersions, like the one that I attended, and there are other events like Plant Stock. What was it like to do your first Engine 2? It was terrifying. After? <laughs> it was terrifying. But also, you know, but also yeah. like the full circle. It was amazing because Rip and I have become close friends. Uh, whenever we travel, we stay in the same hotel room together, and, you know, like the whole slumber party you know we geek out on plants and 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 tv shows and um he's really become a close friend and mentor to me and just to be able to give back to somebody who at the time i didn't know what he was offering because i was such a selfish drug addict um and to be able to bring uh, a unique voice and message to a program that i i got so much out of is in a small way me being able to say thank you to him every single time uh, because I know for certain that um, I'm, there's a possibility I might be sober without the, the tools that I learned from RIP, but I wouldn't be happy and healthy. And the other half of that is that, um, you know, I don't blame my mom or my dad. Uh, I don't blame my mom or my dad for my drug addiction or my obesity, or my heart disease. Um, what, I, uh, what they are responsible for is uh, being the heroes that I needed them to be when I needed them in order for me to save my own life. Uh, and more so than for me to have a relationship with my parents, which I, I do I have a relationship with my parents I've never had before, was such a terrible son uh, for so long that I feel so good to finally be the son that they deserve to have. Um, and to be that for them is, is uh, in, in some way, the only way I think I could ever thank them. So, uh, because I, I don't know if I'll ever forgive myself for the way that I treated them uh, when I was really in, in, in some really bad stuff. But being able to make sure that my mom and my dad live a plant-based lifestyle and are around to hopefully see their grandkids um, is going to be... Hopefully that will be good enough. We need to do a product placement for Kleenex here. We're all all streaming. We all got something in our eyes just now. Um, so I know when we we talked over the phone, I think it was might have been just after Plant Stock last yeah. last summer after we met. You'd mentioned like it feels like you have a uh, I don't remember the exact words, but the impression I got from it is like you have a mission to help people with drug addiction, yeah. and your message is really different because of the plant-based yeah. aspect. Can you talk a little bit about like, your ideas around that and yeah. like, what your goals are? Yeah, my, my goal is to, and I'm actually, I, I'm, uh, I presented at a treatment center in Cleveland just recently, and then Jane Esselstyn is gonna be presenting um, there next week. Um, and it's about implementing a plant-based environment into a sober living facility. We now know the only diet that's ever been proven to improve, been proven to improve mood states is a plant-based diet. And so if we can do that, if we can create an environment where when you check in, you say, look, you know what? You've got a lot of work ahead of you in terms of your emotional and psychological recovery. But if you check in our place 
when you leave here, guaranteed you are healthier than when you checked in. There isn't a treatment center on the planet that can guarantee that in terms of addiction recovery. And not only that, we're going to improve the way that you metabolize your medication because when you change, when you live on a plant-based diet, the way that you can metabolize your medication changes. Um, we're going to reduce your inflammation. We're just going to improve your recovery. We're going to help you repair the damage that you've done to your body as an addict. Essentially, we're going to help you become a version of yourself that you've never been before. So that kind of flies in the face of the traditional model, which is we're going to replace your addiction oh, with, with, with another addiction, which, you know, which which all, me, alcoholics are all doing cigarettes. It's to me an, an insult to every addict out there. We're saying that all we care about is getting you off of your drug. We don't care if you die 10 weeks later out there. Because if I had been eating those foods that they wanted me to eat in sober living, the reality is I could have died in sober living from a heart attack. Uh-huh. So what do you care about more? A statistic that says I stopped using my drug or that I'm still alive 20 years later and happy and healthy? I, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I prefer the latter. So what do you... I mean, I think we've alluded to various things, but what do you replace it with? So if we're not just, if we take away your drug, we created a hole in your life, yeah. what do we replace it with? Well, that's the thing. Like, that's what you have to, that's what you have to discover for yourself in terms of, uh, you, you know, self, self-discovery. Um, because, look, the, the symptom of drug use is itself a symptom of an underlying issue. Whether you're masking a childhood trauma, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, that's something you have to discover in terms of your emotional and psychological recovery. That's a therapeutical thing that has to happen. But we can build a foundation around the idea that every day can be about self-improvement. And you want to emotionally eat on a plant-based diet? Be my guest. Eat all the plant-based foods you want on a plant-based diet. Emotionally soothe yourself with plant-based foods. You're still going to make positive change. It's not going to set you back. You want to eat five pounds of sweet potatoes a day? Have at it. It's just 2,000 calories. Right. And, it's, and, it's, and it's, <laughs> it sounds like for you and the message you're putting out there is, you know what? Get addicted to some level of discomfort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And because that's where the tools are developed for self-soothing. The only, the only reason I felt I needed the drug was because I, I wasn't comfortable with who I was as an individual. And I wasn't ready to be uncomfortable enough to discover who I wanted to be. And so I just took a pill that made me a version of myself that I thought was good enough and made me feel like, uh, that doesn't matter. I can personify these, these bullshit you know, qualities. And, uh, and being off the drug was so uncomfortable and I wasn't comfortable with it um, until I found a way to feel like I made positive change on a daily basis to where I knew that the very next day I wasn't gonna be the same person I was the day before. Um, and that was because of the foods I was putting into my body. And there's, there's a change that happens. Like, I can't, that I can't even explain. Like, there's an awakening that occurs, and it's like, I didn't get into it for the animal rights things, although I am very much an animal rights person. Where I would walk through the grocery store, and the, the meat section was an area I avoided. I think David Clark, again, said this thing. Um, the, the meat section was an area I avoided, and very quickly it became dead animals. The way that I moved through the world was not the same way. The way that I saw the world was not the same. And all of that started with the change on my plate. And I really believe that the simplest change in your fork can make the most profound change of your life to where the, even the way that you see things in the world are different. So, yeah. Wow. I want to come back to you because we, we talked a lot during the hard parts of this. Um, there, there, this must feel... Uh, 
I'm, I must. I'm, I'm guessing that there, there's there's some element of like redemption for you, knowing that Adam is, gonna, is changing the world, and he couldn't have done it this way if he hadn't gone through the journey. I don't know if I would use the word redemption. Um, I think that I, there's tremendous pride uh, in Adam and the way he came through this, because I, I there. There are all sorts of ways he could have gone on this journey. Um, that, but I feel very fortunate that he chose, uh, and it was his choice, uh, the plant-based lifestyle. I will say that, in retrospect, looking back, I think that the lifestyle that he has chosen uh, has ensured this life that he's having right now. Um, he's healthier. He's uh, clear in thinking. He has a purpose every time he eats, he knows he is transforming himself and he's taking care of himself. And I think that's his way of, of thanking himself for still being here. Instead of hurting himself, he's now helping himself. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, there's no way to, to, to be redeemed. I think it's just a matter of moving forward. And I'm grateful and, and so proud so proud of who he's become. I always knew Adam was the type of person who would re- reach out a hand to anybody and always would want to help. Uh, that was always there. Even at his darkest moments, that still was a part of who he is and, and what he is. But now knowing that uh, he's able to help other people um, by just informing, educating, and then letting, allowing them to make the choice uh, is, is tremendous. As long as they don't make the wrong choice. No, yeah, but again, he, his defiance is now turning into other ways. He's, you know, unfortunately, sometimes when you take on a new lifestyle, it becomes so, so all-encompassing that you have no time or you can't allow other people to voice their opinions as much because you're right. Um, so I'm tr- still trying to temper that a little bit. But, you know, okay, it works for you. Don't be quite so judgmental. So <laughs> just, be, just show your life, and yeah. that in itself speaks volumes. People will see how happy you are, how healthy you are, and say, hey, what is he doing? Because I don't feel that way. I don't wake up that way. Just give him a big sweet potato. (laughs) Yeah, life is a journey, and it sure is messy, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, my goodness, right? That adds. Yeah. It adds to Messy is not bad. Messy is not bad. Yeah, but it is messy. We grow, as long as hopefully you grow. Yeah. Well, Lisa and Adam said, I can't tell you how honored I am to have had this opportunity and to to be able to share this with the world I'm I'm, I'm 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 already thinking about like usually I sit in my little office and I just type out notes that become my show notes and all I can think of is like I'm going to start the this intro with like you know this is the Plan Yourself podcast I'm Howard Jacobson holy shit wait till you hear this <laughs> like this is this is this is going to this is going to be so valuable and important and meaningful for so many people who listen oh, awesome. and I'm just so thrilled that we got this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a a pleasure. Let's go get some burritos. (laughs) Plant-based, right? Plant-based, yeah. (laughs) And out. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself Podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. I'm in an iTunes review drought. I haven't had one for over a month. So if anyone's out there listening and you find value in this and you want to take a couple of minutes and give back, that would be awesome. For more information about the Big Change Program, led by me and Josh Lajani, visit BigChangeProgram.com. 
And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to everything we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 209. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 208 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast but not the weekly-ish newsletter, The Big Change Bulldog, you can sign up and get the No Recipe Required Cheat Sheet at plantyourself.com slash cheat. Thanks to Tracy Sharp for transcribing this episode of the podcast. And thanks also to Plant Yourself podcast patrons, Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barons, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, John Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Julianne Rollins, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham, and Gila Lacerte. For your generous support of the podcast. And thanks also to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. Saw him this past weekend at the Shikori Hills Music Festival, just a few miles from where I live. If you would like to support the show, you can share this and other episodes on social media via email. You can write that review on iTunes, Get Me Out of My Slump. And you can become a patron of the show with a one-time gift or ongoing contribution over at plantyourself.com. Just look on the right sidebar for donate. In garden news, most of the beans are up. Some of them are not. So I soaked some more seeds to, uh, to replant them today so we can get everything, everything moving. The basil seedlings are doing very well in the greenhouse. I would say another couple of weeks and they can go into the garden. And it turns out that one of our beehives is populated by a variety of honeybee that I am calling Apis assholus that uh, seems to want to sting me no matter what I'm doing, no matter how far away I am from the hive. So, uh, you know, robust and aggressive little critters. So I hope the uh, pollination services they provide will outweigh the, the annoyance and pain factor that I'm dealing with right now. In running news, I achieved a personal record in a 5K, which is not hard because it's the second 5K I've ever run. And the first time I was 30 pounds heavier and pushing a stroller with a toddler in it. Um, but I did average um, 702 miles. So I came in at just under 22 minutes. And I was only beaten by eight other people, including a 10-year-old boy, a 13-year-old girl, um, and various other youngins. I'm now turning my attention to the Leadville Marathon, which comes up in June, and I'm starting to practice kind of oxygen deprivation training. So running while taping my mouth and just breathing through my nose. Going to take my friend Gio's advice and start hiking with backpack full of two bags of kitty litter. And hopefully all that training will help me survive the, the Leadville Marathon, which is coming up at the end of June. So uh, that's it for me for this week. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>